Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Charlie, thanks for the time. Are you going to automatically be back on the finance and ethics committees when uh, Parliament resumes, or is that all going to be changed around again? Well, I will be definitely on the Ethics Committee. I have been at finance while we have been dealing with the uh, Trudeau-Kielberger scandal. Um, And I will imagine that, uh, barring something outrageous, we will have those committees back up and running. And we are going to continue trying to get answers as to how this group managed to get the inside track on what would have been upwards of $900 million of taxpayers' money for a plan that never even made it out the gate once the media started asking questions. It all fell apart. We need to know how this happened. Now, you sent a letter yesterday to the uh, lobbying commissioner, Commissioner Nancy Belanger, and uh, you have several headings here. Question number one, consequences for false declarations. Question two, the Kielberger's obligation to register. But I'll just throw those out there. But tell us, please, what are you asking the lobbying commissioner to do? And I know you've been in touch with her before. Has she satisfactorily addressed the issues that you raised the first time? Well, Roy, uh, we have uh, the Lobbying Act and the Conflict of Interest Act exist to ensure accountability in Ottawa. Our new uh, ethics commissioner, Mr. Dion, has launched this investigation into both Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, Bill Morneau for their refusal to recuse themselves and their uh, the complex weave of relationships between the Trudeau and Morneau families and the Kielberger group. We haven't heard anything from the lobbying commissioner, which is I find disturbing. Madame Belanger is a new commissioner. The previous commissioner, Karen Shepard, I think was the best of the best. She was not afraid to wade in and she laid down the rules again and again because it's about ensuring accountability. It's ensuring that everyone plays by the rules. What always worried me about this deal was how was it that Craig Kielberger could make calls and get the, the key people in the top ministries would answer those calls and we find out that these guys weren't registered to lobby. Uh, so the commissioner has now agreed. I pushed her to to, uh, to, to launch an inquiry. And she says it's a preliminary investigation. Fine, I don't care what she calls it. Um, but I wrote her yesterday because there's a number of issues that really have to be addressed because the, their relationship was so complex that they had weaved such an intricate set of relationships between all the key ministers that they were weaving in and out of all the rules on the Lobbying Act so we need some interpretations here. Other, If we don't have that, I think the Lobbying Act will be considered a joke by Canadians. Is it your sense, do I hear you saying that uh, that we, uh, with the Kilbergers heading the uh, charity, 
And uh, not being registered lobbyists, they registered, I think, uh, late in the game, did they not? They actually registered the day that their uh, director of government relations was ordered to testify at the hearings and uh, at finance committee. And so suddenly they registered and, whoa, we find out they had more government contacts than General Motors. Uh, They had a multiple... Uh, number of people uh, meeting with the key ministers, and none of this was none of this was trackable because it wasn't on the lobbying registry. So, so Charlie, if, are, are, do I hear you saying then that that we charity and the Kielberger brothers, who were not until you pointed out uh, the day that their director was to testify, um, that without being registered lobbyists, they had better access, more direct access, more quick access to maybe the prime minister and ministers than organizations that have been registered as lobbyists for years. Well, this is what's really concerning. is Everybody who deals with government and looking for funding uh, registers. I mean, Heart and Stroke Foundation, you know, any charity that de- deals with government, even if it's really minor stuff, they, they register in the Lobbying Act. And the, the thing that's important about that is that it gets us, shows us who's meeting who. The fact was, is we had no idea, for example, about the April 17th meeting that we've talked about, the key meeting with Bartosz Chagger that I think gave them the inside track. We didn't know about the phone calls with Bill Morneau and where they were, you know, they referred to Mr. Morneau as besties. Um, so they were flying under the radar. And one of the things that the Kielbergers claimed was that they didn't need to register because they weren't lobbying as uh, directors. They were just volunteers. Uh, Roy, are we dummies here? Like, how is it that you can run an organization with this amount of corporate entities and real estate holdings and be the spokespeople, be the founders, and then you claim, well, I don't have to register because I'm just a volunteer. I want the lobbying commissioner to tell me, is that true? Is that, can they do that? Because if they can, then why isn't everyone else going to just say, hey, I'm just a volunteer and not register? So, there's a number of questions about their lobbying that we need to find out. Charlie, what do you suspect is going on or was going on? I think what's become really clear with the Kielberger group, uh, you know, when you when you hear them interviewed, they really put on that voice of like these idealistic young teenagers from Thornhill who wanted to change the world. But they were an incredibly sophisticated operation. Uh, they had multiple corporate entities, holding companies, real estate holdings. It's uh, it's almost impossible to get a whole sense of this. So when they were going into financial freefall in early March, they started to call in their political favors. They were desperate, and they knew who to call. They had the speed dials. Uh, they got that meeting with Minister Chagger, Minister Ning, Minister Morneau. Um, they were pitching their plan to senior bureaucrats with pictures of the Trudeau family who worked for them, it shows us that they had access that nobody else would have had. So when we hear the prime minister say nobody else was capable of doing this work, I don't think he means that these, these guys were so good at their jobs that nobody else and no other organization could have done it. I think what we're seeing here is that nobody else even got invited to help write this program. The Kielbergers were there from the, from the get-go and that kind of insider access is not something we want to have in Canada. It shouldn't be who you know in the PMO. It should be on the strength of your your plan, your credibility, that you get vetted, that you go through a process, and it's a fair and transparent and open process, and none of that happened here. That's why the Lobbying Act issue, Roy, I think is really crucial to this. Okay, one last question for you. Is it your sense, 
that Justin Trudeau is actively and with intent trying to distance himself as much as he possibly can from this current situation because he's worried. Well, Roy, I think when you look at the 5,000 pages of documents, the one thing that really jumped out at me is that they actually were using pictures of Sophie Gregoire and Margaret Trudeau in their pitch to the senior ministers. So they were making the connection explicit. The Trudeau family, we work with them, therefore we're good. Uh, and no, at no point in those 5,000 pages of documents do you see anybody saying, hey guys, I think this is problematic. I think this is putting the prime minister in a real conflict of interest bind. I don't think this is the kind of thing that we want to, to promote. None of that happened. So they were selling the Trudeau family name back to government on a $900 million contract. I think that's very problematic. And I think it's very, the prime minister knows now, uh, it's very problematic for him. That's why he shut down parliament, but he's going to have to answer those questions when we get back. I tweeted earlier that folks who are in the oil and gas sector, and particularly the oil sector in Western Canada, would find that they have friends east of the Manitoba-Ontario border. And there was a lot of interest in that particular tweet. And where that support comes from is the province of Quebec. And it's happened previously, where the people of the province of Quebec have expressed solidarity with the people of Western Canada, and particularly as far as oil is concerned, saying, we want our oil from Western Canada. We don't want it from the United States, and we don't want it from some other part of the world, which is the reality now, because there ain't no pipelines. Oh, and how do Quebecers feel about pipelines? Well, we have that information for you as well. Uh, the Montreal Economic Institute conducted a poll. It was uh, done by Ipsos, our good friends at Ipsos. And um, Quebecers, by a 71% majority, that's a big number, 71% majority prefer oil to enter the province by pipeline from Western Canada to being shipped in from overseas. Germain Belzeal joins us on the program, Senior Research Associate at the Montreal Economic Institute. Mr. Belzeal has been with us in the past, Germain, thank you very much for coming back. And that 71% of Quebecers who would prefer oil from Western Canada if no oil can be found or developed in Quebec, that's a big number. How does that compare with the last one? Uh, it's a big increase. Oh, by the way, uh, thank you, Roy, for having me again. I'm very happy to be on your show. Thank you. Um, uh, it's a big increase. It's a 6% increase over the last poll last year, and it's outside the margin of error, which is 3.5%. So there is uh, definitely a shift uh, happening in Quebec, and it's in favor of uh, Western uh, Canadian oil. And these are the this is the people of Quebec who are expressing their views. That's right, not the politicians yeah. <laughs> uh, or the media. In fact, the uh, media is concentrated in Montreal, which uh, has perhaps a different opinion from the rest of the province, but that's not that much. In fact, ordinary people uh, uh, that, that work, that, uh, that travel, that buy cars, uh, the the feel that uh, they need oil and they'd much rather buy it from uh, from Western Canada than from elsewhere. In fact, in second place, so in first place it's Western Canada oil. In second place, it's the United States at uh, only eight percent and six percent for uh, uh, for the rest of the world. In fact, so now you just look at a that huge margin in favor. It's huge. It is a massive margin, and it's totally ignored by the politicians. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, they probably feel that. Uh, 
they don't want to ruffle feathers, uh, and environmentalists, uh, generally speaking, probably uh, are ruffled pretty easily. And um, so, uh, and the majority of people are pretty silent on, on this subject. Uh, it's only when we poll them that we uh, understand what they what they want. And so, politicians are very don't they probably don't feel that they have much to to gain by promoting um, uh, Western Canadian oil. And um, so uh, they either don't speak about it or uh, speak once in a while against it, uh, simply to, uh, let's say, uh, uh, greenwash their, uh, <laughs> their, 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 their reputation. But, but that's it. No wonder there's such tremendous emotional support for politics in this country, right? It's just amazing because they, they treat people so responsibly and so well and respond so, so honestly to what the people wish. 71% of Quebecers prefer their oil from Western Canada if no oil can be found and developed in Quebec. 71%, 8% from the United States, 6% from the rest of the world. Now, Germain, when it comes to transporting oil and, and you, didn't just poll Quebecers, you polled Canadians nationally on this, right? In, in fact, all the questions were asked uh, to, to Canadians, and we, let's say, we, uh, we, we took a look at, at, at the most interesting numbers. Uh, uh, so the, the 71%, that's, uh, that's Quebecers, and um, uh, if we look at uh, Canada, uh, generally speaking, 49% uh, uh, of uh, Canadians uh, prefer um, uh, uh, pipelines or any other, uh, any other uh, uh, mode of transportation. And in second place, uh, there's uh, um, uh, trucks, and uh, no, tr- not trucks, trains at 13% only. So uh, there's a huge margin in favor of pipelines. And the number is a little uh, lower in Quebec at 41%, 49% nationally, nationally but um, uh, it's not it's not that Quebecers favor uh, trains that much because uh, because that's like Megantic, I guess. So uh, in fact, we've got a, a pretty high number of people who would prefer their oil to appear uh, uh, miraculously in their gas tank, I guess, because they, they have no opinion on, on how to transport <laughs> Isn't that how it works? <laughs> yeah, well, well uh, but, it, but it's, it's, it, it is telling, is it not? People. Yeah, it's telling that a much larger percentage of Canadians prefer, would, would opt for pipelines over rail and over truck and over any other mode of transport. Exactly. And, uh, well, people understand that um, the, the, safest, the safest way by far of transporting oil is, is pipeline. Um, I think that, personally, I think that um, uh, some companies made major mistakes. Um, uh, Energy East, for example, should never have gone uh, through uh, or very near major uh, population areas. Um, uh, it would have been possible to um, uh, route it differently uh, further north, and ideally at the summit of um, uh, of hills or, or small mountains. Um, uh, we don't have the Rockies here, so our mountains are much less high, much much uh, yeah. And it would have been possible this way. You don't you don't uh, cross creeks or, or rivers that much, so it would have been possible to probably um, uh, have a, more of a consensus in favor of pipelines. And I'd add that. Even people who are in favor of pipelines don't want them in their backyard. So uh, I, I think that uh, a different effort could be successful in Quebec. And also, we have a big, big problem with politics. Uh, uh, in fact, um, uh, even if uh, people are in favor of pipelines, well, if politicians uh, uh, create laws such as a CC, uh, Bill 60, uh, C69 and make things very, very difficult for companies, 
And if we have an approval process that takes forever and it is very uncertain, well, uh, we'll have a lot of difficulty having companies spending billions of dollars, in fact, uh, and before they can uh, get any oil flowing uh, in, in, in uh, hope, hope for pipelines. So uh, we have a political problem here more than a problem with political um, uh, opinion, I believe. Yeah. Now, you also had some very interesting numbers on climate change. Share those with us, please. Oh, yeah. Well, um, uh, uh, we, asked, we asked people, in fact, uh, what were the most important problems or challenges facing Canada. So at the 32%, uh, we had health care. At 22%, that's nationally. Uh, at 22%, we had the economy and jobs. And at 14%, in third place, we had uh, climate change. So um, uh, with non-standing non uh, Greta Thunberg, in fact, uh, most Canadians are, don't believe that the, uh, the end of the world is coming next year uh, because of climate change. And they believe that it's a problem, there's a challenge there, but they don't believe that, in fact, it's, 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 it's as important and, uh, as other problems. And I'd add that uh, we ask, also ask them, um, uh, how much are you really, would you be willing to pay in order to, to, um, to um, uh, fight uh, climate change. And 61% of Canadians said zero dollars, nothing, zilch. And um, if you look at uh, from one dollar to a hundred dollars, it's a very small percentage. So in fact, um, uh, 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 most people would be um, uh, opposed to spending less than a hundred dollars per year uh, on climate change. Yeah, I'm just looking at these numbers now, Germain, and 61% want to spend nothing. Now, again, 14% or th- in third place, is climate change and issues of concern to Canadians or issues that matter. So, uh, so then, though, when you when you when you ask how much are you willing to spend on climate change, sixty one percent, nothing, and then you add another twenty two percent between a, a dollar and a hundred dollars. So that's in my math is reasonably correct. That's about that's eighty three percent, and then you say, all right, so between a hundred and one dollars and three hundred dollars, that's four percent. So that's 87%, if, I, if, I, if I'm close, 87%. You're correct. Okay. 87% would spend a maximum of $300. Is that a year? Per year, yep. And per year. not per person, per household. Per household. So, wow. Okay, so that's so, for, let's say, a household or, or, or two, three, four people, for example. So yeah. Or five. So that's so even bigger. Much. That number is yeah, even. If you look at, uh, you look at uh, uh, an amount of uh, $100 or, or, or less, which is uh, 80 to 83%, I believe, uh, would not be willing to pay more than $100. Well, $100, that's uh, how many coffees per month? Uh, it's, it's not much. Yeah. It's a very, very small sum. So people, people don't want to be taxed. That's pretty simple. They don't want to be taxed to fight climate change. We believe that there are other ways to, to do it. And uh, so um, uh, if we polled um, the carbon tax, it would probably be very, very unpopular. So politicians usually find uh, hidden ways, in fact, to, uh, to do the, uh, what they want to do uh, concerning climate change. For example, in Quebec, we don't have a carbon tax. We have a carbon market. So people don't see that tax. They, we never talk about the carbon tax uh, in Quebec. But still, uh, the carbon market uh, increases costs for um, our companies, and, well, they, they increase the price of, uh, of gasoline, but it's in very indirect, and people don't see that. So the, I, I think that the rule of the game here in Canada is hiding the cost as much as you can. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Aaron Eve Giroux, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, tells us twice, a guaranteed income plan, 45 to 91 billion for six months. Knowing that, what does the Liberal MP enthusiasm for such a plan permanently speak to you about? Well, first of all, I'd love to know how they're going to pay for it. I think that's the obvious question at the top of everyone's minds. But, of course, I'd like to know what it looks like. Um, you know, the cost, the price take for these plans, uh, the PBO has done a study, like you said, uh, you know, up to, up to you know, $90 billion for six months. We've seen other estimates from credible economists that say it could be up to half a trillion dollars if it's more generous and more broad. So, so much depends on the details. But the very fact these guys are looking at ways to spend piles of more money at a time when we are running a massive deficit already just seems to be it's to me that they, they don't seem to care very much about how it's going to be paid for and, and what the burden is going to be in the long run as a result. I think we're seeing the shiny video, or the video of the shiny uh, object now, uh, with the leaking that's coming from the Liberals in the throne speech. We're supposed to be, I think, uh, maybe just uh, becoming a little less sensitive to what may come our way. But let's think about, let's talk about what our debt is, what what we owe, in fact. We have the national debt reaching close to a trillion, maybe over that, I don't know. Uh, $348 billion for the uh, deficit, somewhere in the $340 billion mark. What kind of spending uh, monies does Canada have left? Well, we don't. I mean, that's why we're borrowing. And, and I know a lot of people, once we get into these types of figures, uh, you and I, we don't deal with that kind of money in our daily life. So it all sounds like a lot. But to put, give people some perspective, we're spending right now about $2 for every dollar coming in. That is a lot bigger deficit than we usually have. Sometimes it's a dollar five or a dollar ten for every dollar. Right now, it's two bucks for every dollar. The other thing I'd say is the amount of debt we have run up since the beginning of this pandemic is about as much debt as we ran up over the last twenty years. So that is the rate of borrowing that we are embarking on. It is of a scale none of us have ever seen in our lifetime, and that's why I just find it strange that rather than talk about how do we cut things back, how do we get back to something close to balance. Uh, a lot of politicians seem to be dreaming even bigger as if we weren't just sideswiped with all these emergency expenses, expenses and that they want to find ways to spend even more money. And Aaron, they had a majority government for four years. They could have done all of this stuff or just approached it uh, then. Now they're going to squeeze it into a five-week period. We also have this new program, which is going to pay out $400 per, $400 per week to those who qualify and not begin to claw back until someone reaches $38,000 in income benefits. Now, that's going to maybe discourage people uh, who are close to minimum wage from even going and getting work because they do better in, in another, you know, in this other scenario. Well, and we're already seeing that with the service to some extent. Like, no one yeah. denies, Roy, that there are people who still need help. They work Absolutely. In the they don't have a choice. Of Absolutely. But there, but there are definitely others who have the option to work. And I get emails and phone calls from business owners saying, I can't get my employees back because the difference between what they get from CERB and what they get working for me is so small. And then, of course, people say, well, why don't you just pay your workers more? And I find that always interesting. Until you're the consumer that has to buy those goods or services, are you willing to pay the higher price to ensure those workers get a higher salary? So, look, it, I think all we ask of this government is that they continue to refine and narrow down their programs. At the beginning of this, of course, everybody knows they didn't have much choice. But as we go along, as the economy opens up, 
they need to find ways to help people that don't discourage people who are able to go back to work from going back. And help the small businesses in this country survive and do it properly because the small businesses, and we say it ad, ad nauseum almost, they're the number one employers in Canada. They're the ones who provide the, the, the most jobs in this country. Provide them the assistance. So I won't be talking, as I am in the next hour, with a woman, a small business owner from Dryden, Ontario, who for the very first time in her life tweeted today and tweeted a photograph of herself as she, through the tears, as she contemplates losing her business. Yeah, it is, a, it is a terrible time for the vast majority of small businesses. And I, and I think I, that's what I worry about in terms of where the government is going, Roy, is that the burden will fall on small businesses and the government will decide the best way to reshape the economy is to pick a handful of large politically connected businesses and give them piles of money and really just hang small businesses out to dry. So I really hope the government looks at ways to ensure all businesses, uh, you know, including small businesses, are taken care of, not just the big guys. Yeah, one more thing here, Aaron. The opposition parties had better be heard from as well, and particularly the Conservative Party needs to be heard from. This cannot be a game of opportunism for anybody. Yeah, I don't think so. I, th- I don't think the country's in the mood for that. I frankly don't think the country's in the mood for an election. I was glad to see that the Liberals, you know, we heard yesterday they seem to be walking down uh, their claim they were going to have this big green recovery, $100 billion. They seem to have come to their senses on that. I'm glad to see that. Um, but let's just hope going forward after the throne speech and in the fall and economic update that they, they get a handle on the figures and realize that the amount of money we have to spend is, is not unlimited. Yeah. Tim Rector is the president and CEO of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. And uh, I have a lot of respect for Tim. He does great work. His organization does great work. And homelessness is a huge issue in this country, and the concern is growing growing because during a time of massive government debt and deficit, small businesses across Canada under stress, and a pandemic second wave possible, and we're transitioning from summer to winter weather, the issue of homelessness becomes ever more important. Tim, thank you for taking the time. And uh, you spoke with parliamentarians about homelessness and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and your organization, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. What did you tell them? What did you get back from them? Well, we were talking, uh, we talked a, a couple of things. One is we expressed some concern that uh, there is a significant risk that homelessness in this country gets uh, quite a bit worse, as you, you mentioned in the introduction. You know, the, the uh, pandemic is really hitting hard uh, low-income workers, um, lower-income Canadians, uh, which I think is pushing many toward, uh, toward risk of homelessness. We did a poll at the end of July. Um, and we found a quarter of Canadian renters were worried about paying rent uh, next month. So um, there is a very real risk that it's getting worse. But we also talked about the opportunity. I think there's an opportunity as we come out of this pandemic or uh, as we begin to plan for the recovery that we can build a recovery for all, like recovery that begins to fix some of these challenges. And to your point about uh, about the cost of the, the increasing debt, there's a way to actually do it that that will save over eighteen billion dollars in the next ten years. Yeah, and uh, you know when we look at a three hundred forty-three billion dollar deficit, though, that has to be paid back. This all has to be brought into into focus. And for for homeless people, uh, mm-hmm. not, just just not having a home is a tremendous burden emotionally, physically, obviously financially. I'm curious: are long-term homeless realities increasing? In, in Canada, Tim, and I'm not talking about somebody who is homeless for a matter of 
a couple of weeks or a month or two and is couch surfing, but somebody who really doesn't have any place? Well, we what we're seeing in the uh, shelter data that the federal government uh, collects is a couple of, um, I think, fairly striking patterns. Um, or a few. One, one is if you're Indigenous uh, man or woman, you are far more likely to end up in the shelter system. So for men, it's 11 times more likely. For Indigenous women, it's 15 times more likely. We're seeing that the shelter population is getting older. So there's more people approaching seniors. And for people experiencing homelessness, especially those who have been there long term, they're effectively seniors. Like, I'm, I'm 50. And, you know, if I would spent a lot of time homeless, I would effectively be a senior now because the life expectancy for someone with prolonged homelessness is uh, sort of 50 years old. Wow. Um, didn't know that. Right. And we're also seeing, you know, in, in the trends, increases in the family shelters system. So more families, largely families led by uh, single moms. Uh, ending up in in the shelter system, and, and a number of that, some of that is also driven by um, people coming uh, to Canada and ending up in the in the shelter system, but not not a huge number. So, I mean, there are some worrying trends, but there's also, I mean, some significant good news. We see communities like Edmonton. You know, they before the before the pandemic, they'd reduced homelessness forty five percent. And yeah, I saw that. We, yeah. yeah, and we see in, in communities, smaller places in Ontario, places like Guelph, um, Kawartha, Halliburton, uh, starting to turn the numbers around and see significant reduction. So we know what to do. Uh, we know how to do it. It's really a matter of having the will and the focus and the resources to get the job done. Well, the support is there. The national support from Canadians, Nanos polling, shows 80% of Canadians support investing in dealing with homelessness. It's difficult to get 80% of Canadians to agree on it's that it's Saturday. Yeah, well, that's right. You know, and, and I think uh, there's two things that are probably driving that. One is the, the that poll also found that uh, what I found, a pretty shocking number of Canadians have actually some personal connections. So 36% of Canadians had either experienced homelessness themselves, about 1.6 million Canadians, or knew somebody, a family member or a friend, I think that, to me, that even you know, I've been around this for quite a while, and I, I honestly found that those numbers really surprising. But I think the the pandemic as well. Like I think, you know, Canadians uh, have had to isolate, and their housing becomes such an important part of their healthcare that they're beginning. That I think many people now empathize with those that can't isolate, can't go yeah. home, don't have that same ability, so uh, are are looking for for government to to help out and fix the fix this challenge. Well, um, you know, we have 49, and we keep going back to this statistic, but it's concerning, very concerning. 49% of Canadians, according to Ipsos polling, were within $200 of not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month, and that's before the pandemic struck. So that's a very concerning uh, bit of information. But the light at the end of the tunnel, you mentioned Edmonton again. Can you tell us quickly, what is it that Edmonton did, in fact, in order to reduce their homeless numbers by 45%? Well, there's uh, there there's a few things that are really important there. One is they've got exceptional leadership there. The Edmonton's homeless system is led by an organization called Homework Trust, which is a charity. Um, they bring together a homeless system, and the and the cities rallied around this vision of eliminating homelessness. And so they've you know they've done a lot of the right things. They used housing first. They you know they're using data. They're doing all like the, the tactical things, like all the, the really important technical things you need to do. Uh, right. They're doing those really well. But you know what happened in Alberta is at the time when Edmonton got started, 
Alberta was going through a terrible recession, and everybody knew somebody that was struggling to pay their rent or pay their mortgage or find housing. And the provincial government responded with an investment of about $800 million uh, in housing and, and homelessness, and that led the groundwork for what were actually the only province-wide reductions in homelessness anywhere in, country, in, anywhere in Canada. You know, when you have the template, it's a lot easier to get things done when you can point directly to some location within your own environment, in this case our national environment, and say they're doing it. And you also pointed to Guelph, Ontario. We have a lot of listeners there uh, in the city of Guelph. They're doing it as well. It's it's possible, and it's so necessary. Tim, thank you for everything that you do with the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. It's, you're such an important organization in, in this country, and you do so much good. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ryan. Take care. I started a tweet yesterday with these words, cut it out, cut it out. And what it's about is Canadians who have a vehicle with U.S. plates, maybe they're snowbirds, have been in too many cases having those vehicles vandalized. And it has to do with some folks thinking, all right, these are Americans who are coming up here to vacation and otherwise shouldn't be here, and they're bringing potentially COVID-19, and we're going to make them pay for it. You know the story. You've heard it. And British Columbia Premier, we seem to hear this story coming from B.C. more than anywhere else. And uh, the Premier of British Columbia, Mr. Horgan, had a brilliant suggestion. Take a bicycle or public transit or change your plates. Now, that's leadership. Not what, what did you say, Mr. Horgan? What about the vandals? What about the lawbreakers? Any concerns there? Any message for them? Here are two brothers from British Columbia joining me on this program now, Ken Vedelin and Keith Vedelin. Uh, and Keith Vedelin has had his vehicle already vandalized in uh, Victoria. And uh, Ken Vedelin's concerned about his because they both have United States license plates. It's not a crime. Um, Keith Wheatland, uh, Keith, thank you for coming on the program. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm good, sir. You must be utterly uh, disappointed, though. What happened to your vehicle? What did they do to it? Well, truly disappointed. Uh, this past Wednesday evening, uh, sometime probably between 11 and 1 a.m., a uh, party or persons unknown decided to spray paint my entire pickup truck with red and yellow paint with uh, some pro-Trump logos and COVID logos, uh, a few smaller words on there that I won't mention. Uh, also, they decided to smash the windshield and uh, dent up a few of the panels on the, uh, on the vehicle as, as well. It does have Texas plates on the on the truck, and they also decided to steal the license plates. <laughs> Is it your uh, sense that these geniuses uh, were after your truck because of the Texas plates? Oh, absolutely. How much damage did they do? Have you had it assessed? I have. And it's going to depend on largely to how the uh, paint conditioning goes uh, today and tomorrow on the vehicle and whether it has to be repainted completely 
but it's probably in the $3,000 range so far. But the disappointment factor must be just huge. You go outside, you see your vehicle, you see what they've done to it. The immediate reaction, what, what were you feeling? Well, certainly disappointed and certainly, uh, you know, pretty pissed off as well. You know, it's, uh, they made quite a mess of the whole thing. Yeah. And what, course, what kind of reaction uh, have you... The big challenge here is getting new license plates will be uh, fairly difficult. Um, I'm not sure how that would work, but because we're limited time here, I'm going to move on. You'll try, I'm sure you'll try to get BC plates, and I mean, you've owned the truck. Uh, what about reaction from people generally who find out about it, know who you are, know what happened to you? What have you been hearing from just people? Uh, almost unanimously, it's been uh, people are very angry about the whole thing and uh, very supportive of, of me. And, uh, you know, there was a GoFundMe thing started, and there's a whole bunch of money in there, and some of the neighbors have offered money and such. And so it's been uh, people are very angry about the whole thing. Yeah, those good people. People, good people. Nobody likes this kind of thing. Ken, as you listen to your brother describe on the air what happened to him, to his truck, now you've talked to him about it off the air even a lot, I'm sure. When you hear him describe what happened, what what emotions are you feeling? Well, I've had the uh, um, my wife and I. We live uh, six months out of the year in Rancho Mirage, California. So, as truck or as uh, Keith's truck was brand new, we have a brand new car with California plates on it up here. And <clears throat> when we crossed the border at the end of uh, June, then it became apparent when we got on a ferry to come to where we live, then the uh, people, the way they're looking at you, the California car, et cetera, et cetera, even though we're both Canadians. <clears throat> and my wife is a dual citizen, U.S. and Canada. But so when I got home, I drew up a sign and put it in the back window that said, hey, we're Canucks. And we've been driving around with that, getting strange looks as well. But but there's been a lot of instances of uh, cars getting keyed, uh, uh, spray painted, and, and a lot of those are Alberta cars as well. So Yeah, we've heard that. <laughs> so it's so much for the myth of, of Canadians being kind and gentle and generous and welcoming. What about uh, when you're on the road, uh, <clears throat> when you're driving? Do you get any gestures, any horns honking, any, you know, half the peace sign, uh, any of that going on? A couple of horns. I haven't had any flips or anything, but I, I definitely have had, had a few horns. Yeah. Keith, uh, Ken, what about you? Uh, Keith, I'm sorry. Keith, what about you? Same thing? Uh, no, I've not had any any instances uh, or confrontations whatsoever other than this uh, uh, vandalizing of the of the truck. What's your sense of uh, Premier Horgan, uh, who came out after there were stories about Albertans having their vehicles assaulted, uh, saying, well, take public transit, ride a bicycle, or get BC plates? Keith, yeah. what, are you, what, well, what do you want to say to the Premier? The problem with getting BC well, plates is that you have to get BC insurance, too. 
and nobody wants that because it's pretty high priced. They didn't say anything about the vandals. What do you want to say to the people, Keith? Uh, it's always possible that the geniuses who did that to your vehicle might be listening. What would you want to say to them? Well, obviously they're fairly weak. They they do this under the cover of darkness, and uh, you know they would never do anything face to face. I suspect they're, you know, weakling Antifa wannabes, and uh, if they had the courage to come out in the open, they'd uh, face some reality. Yeah. Um, what are you going to do, Ken? I mean, you have the vehicle with the sign in the back. When you uh, when you go somewhere with your wife or go somewhere in the car, do you uh, yeah, we, when you park it? What do you do? What we've been trying to do is never, <clears throat> excuse me, never leave the car alone. We have some friends that live in Vernon that have the same car and live in the same country club as we do, and they they do the same thing. They just there's always somebody in the car if it's not in the garage. Yeah. It is very unfortunate. It's sad that these sorts of things happen. It's absolutely unconscionable. There's no, there's no right for anybody to uh, become a uh, vandal vigilante and decide for themselves that you must be somebody who doesn't belong in Canada, and now they're going to destroy your vehicle. That's just insane. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.